Let me briefly recap what's been going on in the two weeks here. I don't know how many of you have been able to attend the meetings that we've had or how many of those meetings you've been able to attend, but basically the overview is simply this. The first week of our time together, we wanted to look at the great controversy and see how God is dealing with the situation of wickedness and evil in his universe. And we looked at Matthew chapter 13, and we saw that Jesus was the owner that sowed the good seed, and his intention was to have a a pure, healthy world and universe and happy, holy beings in all harmony with his law, yet we realize that there is wickedness, and it was found in the heart of Lucifer. And for the last 6,000 years, God has been going through a process of eliminating sin and its originator, but doing it in such a way that when it's done, it will never rise again. And what we want to do is know our place in that controversy, our place in that timeline, and we realize that Jesus is in fact coming very soon, and he intends for his people to be the evidence that his plan of redemption makes sense. So we want to be a vindication of the character of God in our own lives through our walk with him and his pardon of our sins and his power of our lives going forward. We want to live exemplary lives, not for, by our own merits or for our own glory, but by God's power and for his glory alone. And soon and very soon we'll see Jesus. So that describes the faithfulness we want to have to God. But in our second week, I wanted to challenge us to go beyond mere faithfulness. Now, I know you're saying, wait a minute, what's beyond faithfulness? What's beyond faithfulness is usefulness. What we need to do as people is not just individually have a personal relationship with Christ, but now that that is secured, now that we have that assurance of salvation, we have our walk with Christ, now we need to be his working agents in saving other souls. We bring out this point that, yes, we were not saved by works, but we were saved for works. God intends to use us on earth as he used his angel hosts in heaven to be his ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So I want to challenge us to an individual walk with Christ in faithfulness, but also an individual walk with Christ in usefulness for his cause as we attempt by God's grace to take the soon coming and make it sooner. Amen? Now we're going to boil down to, and last night, i just review one more time, we looked at the agricultural cycle that Christ and the Bible constantly reaffirms and goes back to again and again that winning souls is like growing seeds and crops for the harvest and putting them to use. So there are those five steps, and you want to get that audio if you missed it. We're going to have the slides available after we're done on Audioverse and some other way, I'm sure, I don't know. But... Basically, we want to be soul winners and growers and producers of disciples for Jesus Christ by preparing the soil of the heart, by sowing the seed of truth, and by cultivating through Bible study those interests who see their need for Christ, harvesting with decisions for baptism, and then going through a discipleship program so that those who come into the faith don't leave six minutes later. They actually stay grounded and become, in their own way, Sowers of seed and winners of souls. That's what we want to do. And now we're going to take all this into a message I've entitled today, It's Time to Eat Grandpa. Now, before we get into the study, I just want to give you a little preface as to why this particular message is important to me. It may not be that touching to you. My, my aim is that hopefully there's some information that everyone here can benefit from, but 
I have been a pastor now for over 15 years and Bible teacher for eight of those. And I've been in the system and I love the system and I love our church families and I love the work that I do. But I'll be quite honest with you. I need to get that one out of my vocabulary too because it implies that I've been dishonest up until this point, right? (laughs) So it's like, hey, I'm going to be real honest. It's like, well, what have you been doing? (laughs) I will continue my trajectory of honesty, I'll say, and tell you that I have struggled as a pastor knowing what I'm supposed to do. Now, my conference president knows about this, so don't call or anything, but... And I'll tell you one little, little scenario before we get into our message today. The, when you go to, to investigate a call to a new church or district, they'll sit down and they call it an interview, but the church doesn't hire you, the conference does. So it's really just a meet and greet with the church families. And you'll have all the leaders and board members and stuff, and you'll have 20, 30, however many people in a room, and they get a couple hours just to ask you questions. And in one of the church families that we went to, not going to name names, But it's typical of so many. In that time of getting to know my wife and I, every single question, every single question was about what it was we do, what we offer, what we can do for them. Do you play the piano? Does your wife teach Sabbath school? Can you do this? Can you do this? Do you do do special music? Do you prepare me? What are you going to do? And it's all just like... Because they're looking at this as you're coming to work for us. And as I left the interview, again, kind of get that out of my vocabulary too, the meet and greet, the conference official who was with me put his arm around me. He said, did you hear their questions? He said, every one of them was about what you can do for them. He said, your job is to make them ask better questions. (laughs) Change that paradigm. And that's what the purpose of today's message is, because every one of us, by God's grace, will not only be an individual Christian, but be part of a Christian community and be involved in a local church. Okay? And I want to instruct you what has been a blessing to me to understand my role as a pastor and hopefully understand your role as a lay member in God's work. What is it I'm supposed to do and what should a local church look like in the relationship between a pastor and the congregants? That's kind of where we're going today. And our message is titled, It's Time to Eat Grandpa. But before we dive into that study, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this gorgeous Sabbath day. I thank you for this event of restoration. And I thank you that We can fellowship together and worship together and serve you together. And Lord, guide our study this morning, I would ask. And I don't ask it presumptuously, but confidently, because you have promised to lead us into all truth. So Lord, today, send your Holy Spirit to this room. Not in a general, vague, ethereal, warm, fuzzy sense, but specifically, Lord, take the word of God and write it on our hearts. Let us become the people you want us to be, the people others need us to be, so that we can see Jesus soon and very soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and your bulletin, if you would. I want you to do a fun activity with me. In your bulletin is written the title of our sermon today. It's time to eat Grandpa. And what I'd like you to do is look at the title of the message. It should be right there. 
Okay? It's time to eat, Grandpa, and I don't want you to change anything about it. I want you to leave all the words exactly the same, but if you have a pen, if you have a pencil, I'd like you to make one little edit that might change your understanding of where we're going today. Okay? Just a little bit. What I want you to do is after the word eat, put a what? Comma. Does that change the meaning? Yes. Did we change the wording? No. Now, why do we do this? Okay? Let's, let's study this one out a little bit. Okay? Though worded identically, there's a huge difference between it's time to eat, Grandpa, and it's time to eat, Grandpa. <laughs> It's the exact same words, but the meaning is drastically, dramatically altered, right? Now, that what in the world does this have to do with pastoral ministry? It has nothing to do with cannibalism, I promise you, it's not that. But I wanted to drive home this point in a very fun way, that that one little difference, that comma, can change the sense and the meaning of what's being said. We encounter such situations in Scripture. Anytime you give a Bible study on the state of the dead, anytime you give a, hear a public evangelist speak about the state of the dead, you're going to have to explain one passage in the Bible because of this troubling comma issue. Does anyone know, for extra credit bonus points, you might have an evangelist in the room, it's like every time this one... It's Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. Every Bible you have in your hand, I don't care if it's King James or some modified new thing, right? It's going to always have the same issue with it. And Jesus said, and if we read it with the punctuation in place, it changes the meaning. And assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. With that comma, it means that that moment, Jesus was promising that later that same day, they would both be in paradise together. And people will look at that and say, it clearly says in Scripture that Jesus would be in paradise with that guy that day. So how do you resolve that? How do we have the audacity to stand up and say, the Bible is wrong? Well, because you understand that the punctuation is not inspired, right? The wording is exactly fine, but if you change that one comma, it changes the meaning. Now, why would we do that? Well, we'll come into that in a minute, but notice the difference. If you change the comma one position point, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So the declaration is today, the paradise is later. Do you understand that? Same exact wording, different meaning. Okay? When a passage's meaning, and this is a good hermeneutical clue for you, okay, how to read the Bible. When a passage's meaning is unclear, how do we know what's the correct interpretation? Context. You read the stuff around it. Any Bible discrepancy or apparent contradiction that you find is always resolved with the same way. Just keep reading. Okay? Now, in this case, you have to look and say, well, did Jesus actually go to heaven that day or was he put into the grave? And did he raise and say, I have not been to my father on Sunday morning? You can broaden out the context of the story and realize that this Correct interpretation is not the one that's written in the Bible, but the one that the Bible still teaches. Okay? Now, I bring all of that up because there's another problem comma in Scripture 
that we are less familiar with. It's not in Luke 23, and it's not about the state of the dead. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to look this one up in your Bibles too. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 is almost the same in every version, but it's verse 12 that gives us the problem that I want to address and resolve today. Speaking of the gifts and responsibilities and positions of leadership that Christ established in the work of his church on earth, the Apostle Paul declares how he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Okay, so clearly not everybody in the church is a pastor, not everybody's an evangelist, not everybody has these different gifts, but some are. So these are those leadership positions God has established in his church. Okay, so in verse 11 it tells us what the positions are, then in verse 12 it tells us what they're supposed to do. And this is what the King James Version says. For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. With those commas there, how many jobs do the pastors, teachers, evangelists, and whatnot have? Three. Their first job is to perfect the saints. I quit. <laughs> right? Then, when they're done with that, or at the same time, they also need to do the work of ministry. And, of course, they need to edify the body of Christ. That's why God put those positions on earth, so they would do all of those things, right? Well, how many in the room have a new King James Version? If you'll notice, look at your version in verse 12, you'll see it's a little bit different, and it changes the meaning dramatically. This is the new King James. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now we've taken three jobs down to two. And notice this, you equip the saints for the work of ministry. So in this one, who's doing the work of ministry? The saints. And then your job is just to edify the body of Christ. But I think it gets even better than that. I think the best translation I've seen of this passage that most accurately describes the context is actually found in the New International Version. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Do you notice now it's one job? What's the primary role of those pastors, teachers, and evangelists and all those positions in the church? To equip the people so that they'll do works of service so that in turn the body of Christ may be built up. Now how do we know which one is correct? We look at the context. We keep reading, right? Ephesians chapter 4, he continues his explanation. And if you have the time, read through the entire chapter. It's a great read. But for our purposes today, let's skip down to verse 16. Notice what he writes here. This is going back to the New King James, which is the standard version I've been using all along. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what? By what every joint supplies, okay? According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Churches will be edified and grow when every member does its share. When the church is full of workers, the church will grow. When the church is full of watchers, the church will not grow. It's just that simple. 
And that brother who put his arm around me was right. He said, your job is to get them asked better questions, not to say, what can you do for me, but what can I do for the Lord through your training? Paul viewed the work of what we would term the clergy, right, the full-time leadership, as primarily twofold. And we'll see this in his counsel to his protégés. Uh, Paul had a really fun thing. He would not only go and do the work of ministry, but just like Jesus, he would take someone with them and train, equip, and mentor them in the ministry as well. And we get to eavesdrop on his notes to them and messages to like Timothy and Titus, right? Paul viewed the work of ministry, as we're going to see, is primarily twofold. The pastoral ministry, the leadership role. Number one, winning souls by personal and public evangelism. He says, do the work of an evangelist. And every member should do at least personal evangelism. Every one of us should be winning souls. Pastors are not excused from individual labor just because they do corporate labor. No, you're going to be a soul winner privately and also professionally, right? And number two, establishing churches, once you've won people to the message, you put them together, organize them into a body by training up local leaders, okay? So winning souls and building churches, establishing local leaders. For instance, let's eavesdrop now on Paul's counsel to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and if you've ever been to an ordination service in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I guarantee you've either seen this printed in the bulletin, heard it read aloud, or maybe even had a sermon preached on this particular passage. And I want to demonstrate that most of us are hearing it incorrectly. Okay? Here the Apostle Paul writes to his protege Timothy and says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom... Just by the way, this is another text that demonstrates the judgment is still future from the time of Paul, but I digress. He says to do what? Preach the word. Amen? We need pastors who will preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now, nine times out of ten, when church members hear that, especially if they're dissatisfied with their pastor, they're going to say, you know what we need is a pastor in here who's going to preach the word to us. But my question is, who is Paul telling Timothy to preach to? Well, let's keep reading. He explains, for the time will come when they, who are they? We'll get there in a minute. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul's basically saying, don't worry, they're not going to leave the church. They're just going to leave your church. They're going to go to other teachers who tell them things they want to hear. Don't be surprised if that happens. He says, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of a what? An evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Question, friends. Who do evangelists preach to? Believers or non-believers? Non-believers. Their goal is to make believers out of people who aren't believers yet. So when he says preach the word, convince people, rebuke people, exhort them with all long-suffering, who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? Non-believers. New people. Potential converts. Not the church members. How about this one to Titus? The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. 
For this reason, I left you in Crete. <laughs> I assume he told him before he left him in Crete why he was leaving Crete. You know, I get the picture in my mind. They were traveling together and Paul just snuck off and then wrote a letter. Here's why I left you behind. Right? <laughs> no, but he's explaining what he expects him to do in Crete. Now, clearly, already we know from the context that Paul had been traveling with Titus. And at some point they were together in Crete. And then Paul went on from Crete, leaving Titus in Crete. Does that make sense? Okay. For this reason I left you in Crete. Why? That you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now you get the picture. They have been doing the work of evangelists together. They've been preaching the message. They've been raising up new converts. And then Paul leaves. And you've got this scattered flock in Crete who understand the message, are converted to the truth, but they're not a body of Christ yet. So it says, Titus, I'm going to leave you there in Crete so that you can set in order the things that are lacking. Now, is he leaving them to micromanage every individual in Crete? No. How do we know that? Because here's what he's supposed to do. And that you should appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So Titus was not left there as the pastor of the church in Crete. He was there as an entire district, a territory, a geographic area that had many cities and many churches. And instead of pastoring each one, Titus' job was to raise up local leadership in those churches and help organize the things that are lacking so that they could be self-sufficient workers. You remember that in Acts chapter 6. The distribution of the daily things was falling to the apostles. And they said, no, 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 we have to change this. Choose from among yourselves seven men who can be put over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to what? Prayer and to the ministry of the word. Over and over you see the apostles understanding that the job of the full-time leadership, the pastors and teachers, evangelists, is to do the work of evangelists, to raise up new believers and to organize churches and then move on and do it again. Not to just raise up a church, stay right there, and that's the end of their ministry. It's not a biblical concept. Okay? Now, we're going to look at the goal of all of these messages to kind of get to this point. Christ has a method of working in heaven where the angels are this great conjugation of 100 million or plus, And they're the frontline workers in the ministry of heaven. The Bible makes it very clear. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. And then Christ comes to earth with the prayer that God's work would be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. And we saw the organization of Israel was laid out like heaven so that every individual was a frontline worker. When Jesus came, he didn't say, come watch me minister. He said, I'll make you fishers of men. And in turn, they should make other fishers of men. The New Testament took that same model from heaven, from the Old Testament, from Jesus Christ's own example. They put it into practice in the early church, and they went around doing the very same thing that Jesus did, ministering to people's needs, preaching the truth, raising up churches, and moving on. And when the Seventh-day Adventist movement was birthed, a movement of Bible prophecy, a people of the book, true to the Word of God, and they started growing numerically, they, were st they had a situation on their hands. What should we do? Do we have all these people who are preaching this message stay here and hover over these churches, or do we 
follow the biblical model and build self-sufficient companies of believers and keep moving forward in the work of evangelism. I want to now we're going to walk through a timeline of Seventh-day Adventist history. And I want to show you from direct quotations the thinking of the early pioneers in the work of the church and the relationship of the lay member to the leadership. Okay? The Seventh-day Adventist built movement was built on the biblical model of cooperative labor between full-time leadership and dedicated laity. It was built on this model. For example, in an interview with the Wabash Indiana Plain dealer, Elder G.B. Starr in the year 1886, and I'm going to kind of use the platform here as a living timeline, okay? So now we're here in 1886, and over there is us now. Are we good? Okay. In 1886, he was asked this question. Now, as you recall, 1863 was the year the Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially incorporated, and there was a big debate in the 1850s about organizing it all. Some saying as soon as you're organized, you know, against organized religion, they had come out of Babylonian churches right now, and they said as soon as we organize, we're back, back in Babylon. There was, but praise God for biblically faithful pioneers to say organization is not the enemy. In fact, it's what God uses all over the place. All of his work is organized. And praise God, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and from that time, through, up through 1886 and even into the early 1900s, the growth of the Seventh-day Adventist movement was exponential. It was frenetic. It was huge. It got the attention of, here 20 years later or so, the Wabash India Plain dealer. They say, why is your church growing so fast? And here was the answer. Well, in the first place, we have what? No settled pastors. He said, the first thing I can think of as to why structurally we're growing so quickly is we don't have any settled pastors. Our churches are taught to take care of themselves while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. I assume he says nearly because there probably were some administrators, but most were ministers on the front line doing the work of evangelism, and the members were taught to take care of themselves. Notice they were taught to take care of themselves. This is going to be an important theme we're going to come back to. That was 1886. Let's move forward. 1912, General Conference President A.G. Daniels, I believe he was in Los Angeles at the time, speaking at a ministerial institute, spoke about this cooperative relationship in the local church. And he said, we have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors, and now notice the difference, to any large extent. 1886, no settled pastors. 1912, not to any large extent. Now, without looking at the screen, I'm going to take the cheating off. <laughs> Where do you think they put the local, ch- the few people who were settled pastors, what congregations do you think got settled pastors? The big ones, the large ones, the institutions. Oh, wow, we, they're so big, we need them. Right? In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors. But as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. 1912. Now, A.G. Daniels is not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I do believe he had good insight when he continued this statement. He says, and I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our, our churches, to stay by them, 
do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. Do their thinking and their praying. (laughs) It's not that funny, but it's comical, I guess. On more than one occasion in my own experience, I have been standing, after preaching a sermon, standing in the lobby of the church, the foyer there, speaking with somebody who is first coming to the church, a brand new believer. And I've had a dear sister, a good, well-intended deaconess, come up, frustrated with me, pecking on my shoulder. Do you know why? Because across the parking lot in the gymnasium, we were having potluck. And they couldn't start until I prayed. No joke. Pecking on the shoulder. I says, yes, how can I help you? It's like, we have potluck. It's like, oh, good. (laughs) Enjoy. Be blessed. No, no, you don't understand. We can't start. It's like, why not? What's wrong with the food? It's it's like, no, no. I was like, isn't there an elder there or a deacon or literally anybody, (laughs) right? Oh, yes, but you're here and we, it's always best if you, are you kidding me? And I was thinking, what's wrong with it? But I realized we've built a model of pastor dependency for literally everything we do to do their thinking, their praying, and their work that is to be done. Then our churches will begin to weaken, to lose their life and spirit, become paralyzed and fossilized, and our work will be on a retreat. 1912. Oops, sorry, right here. HMS Richard Sr., 1957. Speaking to some young ministerial students in uh, Washington, D.C. at the time, he said, the time of too many of our preachers. Now he's lamenting a shift he's seen in his own experience. Watch this now. 1957, the time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. When I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. He explains, most of our preachers were out on the firing lines, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then every few months, keep that timetable in mind, then every few months, they, that is the pastors, would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. And why would they do that? Well, because this seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. We read the Bible, that's what they did, we did it too, and it worked. Now you look at the Apostle Paul's experience. Most of the time, he would spend maybe a few months to a year, year and a half, three years was a long stay for him at a local congregation. But what was he doing during that time? He was doing the work of evangelism, training up local leadership so that they could be self-sufficient workers, and then move on. He didn't go to one place. It wouldn't be awful if you saw those maps of Paul's missionary journey and had one stop. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) No, he's like, I'm going to preach the word, raise up leaders, preach the word, raise up leaders, and move on and win the world for Christ. He said, that's what we were trying to do, HMS Richards Sr., 1957. Now, in 1994, I believe some people caught on to this trend. And in the Elder's Handbook, that edition, on page 23, you'll find this remarkable statement. 
During the Middle Ages, the clergy largely took over the work of the church. Now, clearly the Seventh-day Adventist church was not around in the Middle Ages, but the Christian faith largely shifted from a lay-driven movement to a clergy-heavy movement, right? The clergy largely took over the work of the church. The Seventh-day Adventist church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers. Members in general, and elders in particular, I mean, these are the ones that Titus was supposed to raise up in every church, elders especially, need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility of the work in the church and its work. So somebody who's watching in 1994, they're looking at this and they're saying, you know, we've seen a trajectory and we've fallen under the same temptation to become pastor-dependent instead of self-sufficient individual workers for Christ. said, we're struggling to get out from under that, but we want to write this manual to help elders in particular and members in general to see their work and role in the church. Now, I went to go present this series of messages, this particular message at one of our universities, and um, I usually like to bring the manuals with me to make sure people don't think I'm making it up. And I forgot to take my nice green little elder's handbook with me. I was like, ah! So that's okay, I'll go down to the ABC and I'll get another one. I went to the ABC and they didn't have my elder's handbook. Well, they had the elder's handbook, but they didn't have my green one. It had changed color, which the color wasn't a big deal, but it had changed editions, and in changing editions, it had been rewritten. So I looked for page 23, and I didn't, well, I did find page 23, (laughs) but it didn't have the statement I was looking for anymore. But I did find this on page 28 of the revised edition, okay? And notice the nuance here, and a reversal of position. The Seventh-day Adventist church is growing rapidly, and many churches are understaffed. Okay. In such situations, in those poor understaffed churches, there may be large multi-church districts where a pastor is shared among several churches and is able to visit each church only once every two or three months. Now pause right there. What did HMS Richards say? He said, when I was growing up, that was normal. That's what was good. And where did we get that from? The Bible. The apostolic model. And it adds, it is the faithful service of local elders that helps keep these churches strong and growing. We need good local leadership until churches can be, you know, properly staffed. The implication is as soon as you get a pastor, we're done. You know, and and I've, I've mentioned this to conference leadership in multiple conferences. I think it's interesting when a group wants to become a company in a route to becoming a church, they have to demonstrate several areas of self-sufficiency. You know, strong, solid tithe returns and attendance at Sabbath services and evangelistic growth, all of which without having a dedicated pastor over that particular flock. And then once you become a church, it's like you're rewarded by getting, here's your pastor. It's like, oh, (laughs) Now, I want to be clear. I'm a pastor And I think there's an important role for the work of leadership full-time, the clergy, if you will, in the church. But I want to tell you right now, it's not to do your work. We have to need, we need a reformation in the methodology of warning local churches and individuals working for the Lord. Okay? Now that was 2013. So we've seen a transition in thinking 
in our methodology of running local churches. Okay? Now I'm going to share with you some statements. Probably more statements from the pen of inspiration than you've ever seen in one sermon in a very long time, perhaps in all of your life. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just letting you know. Now, if you do not appreciate or respect or, or, or regard Sister White as an inspired messenger of the Lord, no problem. But she absolutely was alive during those times and was commenting on the things that she saw. I happen to hold that she is inspired of God and we should listen to her counsel. Okay? But either way, think of it as a historical document or a guiding document, but notice the trend and the concern written out. Evangelism, page 381. If proper instruction were given, if the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. But the churches are dying, and they want a minister to preach to them. They should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. They need to be born again. Have mercy. Now, I don't know if she was using strong language or being hyperbolic when she said they need to be baptized anew, but would that really be considered grounds for rebaptism? That I've come to realize that I don't have my own walk with Christ. I only have my walk through Christ through you. I need to be converted anew, born again, baptized anew. This is a serious spiritual issue. Ministry of Healing, page 149. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. I want to get this my idea in your minds. Every church should be a school. Church should be school. You're coming there to learn, to get trained and equipped to do work for Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of churches. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings. We would call those Bible studies, right? Now I'll pause right there. I find it fascinating in this day and age, and I praise the Lord for it. You see little Bible schools, little Bible colleges popping up all over the place. You know, you can think of all, any acronym, you put any four letters together and you've got a Bible school now. <laughs> right? And I happen to work with one in Michigan. I think it's the greatest of them all, Emmanuel Institute. Come and find out for yourselves, right? But, but the thought occurs to me, what is it you're going there to do? To learn how to win souls and give Bible studies, right? Is it possible you can be a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, having gone even through Adventist education and come out not knowing how to share Bible truth with someone so that you now need to go pay someone else to teach you what you've been sitting in church? And I've shared this with the leaders of most every one of these colleges. I love the fact that they exist. I'm, as a pastor, I want to support them and support them and then do my best on the home front to run them out of business. Because what they're doing is what the local church should have been doing for the last hundred years. Training up lay people to be workers and missionaries for Jesus. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. Wouldn't it be great if not only had, we got the nominating committee to appoint Sabbath school teachers, or the, technically the Sabbath school council. Read your church manual. The Sabbath school council to appoint Sabbath school teachers, but also before they started teaching, taught them how to teach. It'd be a wonderful thing. How best to help the poor and to care for the sick, the humanitarian work, that cycle of evangelism should be taught in our churches. How to work for the unconverted. 
Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. In the Atlantic Union Gleaner, 19, uh, January 8, 1902, there should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated and trained to do effective service. Its members are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. Same year, a few months later, the Pacific Union Recorder, right here close to home. Oh, what a work there is before us. Our ministers are not to hover over those who have received the message. Just as soon as a church is organized, let the ministers set the members to work. These newly formed churches will need to be educated. The minister should devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. He should teach the people how to extend the knowledge of the truth. And we had a fun little promo video here where we went around and asked students, hey, what is it a pastor does? <laughs> What's the pastor? And it's fascinating. Uh, pray, you know, love people. Be nice. And a lot of them work on their sermon, work on their sermon, work on their sermon. The idea is there's this really kind, fuzzy, warm Christian person, which everyone should be, who delivers a sermon once a week. And if they're a good preacher, keeps the congregation interested, not entertained, let me be clear, some, but hopefully not, the members will say, well, he's doing a great job. We come to listen to him perform. But that's not what church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to be a training school where you come and get equipped so you can win souls for Jesus and hasten the soon coming. Amen. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and depend on Him, not on the ministers. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. The Upward Look, page 264. My brothers and sisters, there is something more for you to do than to sit in your churches Sabbath after Sabbath and listen to the preaching of the word. You have a work to do for friends and neighbors. Now, if I had said that, you'd thought I was mean. <laughs> but I'm just hiding behind inspiration. Well, let them do the heavy lifting. I'm just behind there, right? This is a powerful thought. By the way, if someone says, yes, I'm a faithful church member, how do you know? Well, I go to church each week. Well, good. <laughs> That's a good start. But we've seen like faithfulness is basically just pretty decent, somewhat regular attendance at the service. That's a pretty low bar, friends. We need to raise the bar of expectation for every member of God's church. You have a work to do for friends and neighbors. God requires, continue on, that you visit these families and seek to create an interest in the truth for this time. You are not laboring together with God if you neglect the work of helping others to take hold upon eternal realities. Our ministers are not to be encouraged to hover about the churches to repeat to the believers week after week the same truths. It's not supposed to happen. Now you should have a continuing study of those truths, but in your own daily devotions, in the prayer meeting, in the Sabbath school. But why do we have to have preaching after preaching after preaching when we've got souls that haven't heard the message once and we've heard it a thousand times? Evangelism 382. If the, I love this one. If the ministers would get out of the way. 
let me back up. <laughs> if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities. They would be obligated. And their capabilities would increase by what? Use. Now let's think about this. I mentioned the other day about uh, the, the disastrous impact of our misunderstanding of spiritual gifts, especially when it comes to witnessing. It's like, let's go door to door. Let's have some people give Bible studies. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. That's not my gift. Interestingly, that's never mentioned in any of the gift lists in the New Testament. As Mark Finley accurately says, witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Right? It's standard equipment for the born-again Christian. You just share what you know. Now, how to share well, that's my job, is to help you teach and others effectively. Right? But you will say, I've tried to go out door to door. I've tried to give a Bible study. I've tried to win souls. And I'm just no good at it. And I might have to confess, you're probably right. You might stink. <laughs> but is being bad at something a reason to quit something? No. no. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Loma Linda is a health university, and there's some physical therapy students here, right? Okay. If someone had been injured in their leg, they'd had one of the surgical people operate on their leg, and they've been in a cast and in a sling and all kind of apparatus for, let's say, six weeks, and then they take that apparatus off, is the leg that's been worked on different than the leg that hasn't been? Yes. What has happened to the weak leg? Atrophy. It's weak and shriveled. It hasn't seen the sun. It might have an itch or a smell. Ugh. Right? I'm describing the condition spiritually of some church members here. But no. I jest somewhat. The, um, if you go to the physical therapist, they're going to look at that leg and say, oh, my. Man, that doesn't work well at all, does it? Like, No. I've tried to walk, I just fall over. And they say, you know what you need? Bed rest. <laughs> Don't put any weight on it. Don't stretch it beyond your comfort. Just let it sit there. It's just not your gift. Walking is not your thing. No. That would be terrible. Now, would they say, you know what you need to do? Run a marathon. No. <laughs> you know what they would say to do? Take one little step. And then take another one stretch it, get some weights. I assume, I'm not a, I don't know what they would tell you, but something along those lines. And what would happen? Your capabilities would increase by what? Use. If you're bad at something, try again. Work. Spiritual things actually take work. But the Lord will give you what you don't have yet and build you into someone who's an effective worker for Jesus. Review and Herald, October 22, 1889. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, instead of benefiting the church, they will be a hindrance to its advancement and growth. Either we're helping the church or we're hurting the church, but there is no neutral in this cause. Okay? If they're educated to lean upon the minister, they will become only inefficient and demoralized members, and the church will be powerless instead of active and efficient. Now, I don't know if you see what I see in this, but I see a great, a lot of hope in this passage. Look at it again. If church members are, what's that word? Educated to be silent and useless. Do you catch that? Apparently, born again, converted, new into the faith members have to be taught how to be quiet. It doesn't come naturally. 
We've mentioned this before, but you have a new member who just came out of that evangelistic campaign. They're all about the 2300 days and the mark of the beast and the soon coming of Jesus. And the... They go to the water cooler and somebody wants to talk sports and they want to talk prophecy. Now, there might be ways to do it more effectively. They need to be trained to be effective workers, right? But you take someone that first six weeks, they're on fire. By six months, there's a flame ish, six years, if they're still there. They've just sat down and learned to become silent and useless. Now, my question is, did they take a course on how to be a silent and useless member? <laughs> I don't care how bad your church is. I don't have, I've never seen a course that specifically aims to teach people how to be bad workers for Christ. If your church is doing that, please... Talk to your pastor quickly. <laughs> That's the not we want. But how did they get educated? They didn't have a seminar on how to be a bad member. No. Friends, we taught them that. There's some stuff you just pick up by osmosis. Just by being in the room. Just by watching. You just get assimilated to the system. And we realize, oh, that's what Adventists do. They just come to church. And if they're good and faithful, they return a good time. And then go home and... That's kind of it. They conform to the mold that we've built. But I love the fact that you have to be taught. Which then implies you can teach the other way too. Let's continue on now. Gospel workers, 197 and 198. And this is where it really hit for me. What is my job as a leader, a full-time clergy, a pastor in the church? In some respects, the pastor occupies a position similar to that of the foreman of a gang of laboring men or the captain of a ship's crew. They are expected to see that the men over whom they are set do the work assigned to them correctly and promptly, and only in case of emergency are they to execute in detail. She goes on to tell a little parable. The owner of a large mill once found his superintendent in a wheel pit making some simple repairs while a half a dozen workmen in the line were standing by idly looking on. So you get this, the owner of the mill comes to check on the superintendent, who under him has workers. And what he finds is the superintendent down in a wheel pit doing all the simple repairs, and all the workmen are watching him work. Okay? The proprietor, that is the owner, after learning the facts so as to be sure that no injustice was done, this is a good, fair boss, right? Called the foreman to his office and handed him his discharge with full pay. He called him to the office, and he's like, hang on just a minute, let me finish this. He comes up, whoosh, sweating, just pouring off him. He's like, I'm sorry, I only have a minute. How can I help you? He's like, yeah, you're fired. He's like, what? I'm, I'm the only one working down there. He's like, that's my point. You're the only one working down there. Watch this. In surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. It was given in these words. I employed you to keep six men at work. I found the six idle and you doing the work of but one. Your work, please pay attention to this, friends. Your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. That simple daily stuff that you were down in that pit doing, that's what they're there for. And notice this logic. I cannot afford to pay the wages of how many? Seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. 
Is it possible by that foreman's hard work, he's actually teaching indolence to six other people and making the superintendent go broke? He's like, your, your hard work is killing the company. I can't afford to keep you on. I hired you to keep six people working. And they're not doing anything? We've got to make a change. It's a powerful thought. She goes on to explain, this incident may be applicable in some cases, in others not. But many pastors fail in not knowing how or not trying to get the full membership of the church actively engaged in the various departments of church work. If pastors would give more attention to getting and keeping their flock actively engaged at work, they would accomplish more good, have more time for study and religious visiting, and also avoid many causes of friction. Wouldn't that be a nice church where more good was done and less friction was felt and more souls were won? Praise God. And of course, this statement. Gospel Workers 352. The work of God in the earth can never be finished. By the way, I'm so glad the statement doesn't end there. Wouldn't that be horribly discouraging? The work of God on earth can never be finished. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <laughs> but that's not what she says. The work of God can never be finished until... The men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. Friends, I'm telling you, we need a reformation in the Seventh Adventist Church where every member is a missionary for Jesus Christ. Now, this may be applicable in some cases. I don't know about your local church, but I would beg you, beseech of you, start to go to work in your local church and start living out a difference that other people can see. Let me give you some very practical hints. Number one, show up to stuff. Amen. There's a thing called the ministry of attendance. <laughs> Seriously, go to Hebrews chapter 10 sometime. Read verses 24 and 25. Why are we supposed to go to church, especially as the day gets closer? To encourage one another to good works, Amen. right? If you go to a prayer meeting and there's only three people there, but your church has 300 members... Sucks the life right out of the room. Just show up to stuff. You go to an evangelistic campaign that your, your church puts on, they try to do an outreach, and all the members just sit home and pray for it. That doesn't help. Um, prayer helps. Let's be clear. Right? But we're supposed to add to the prayers our work, our diligent effort, our presence. Show up. Somebody new comes in and says, hey, this must be interesting. A lot of people are here to see it. If somebody new shows up and there's only three people there, they're walking out the door. Must not be important. Must not be interesting. Become active participants in your Sabbath schools. Show up on time, dress well, and be prepared to be engaged. It's very simple. The ministry of attendance. Go to church board meetings. Did things just get real? <laughs> Did it get weird in the room all of a sudden? Go to a church board meeting. 99% of the time they're open. Show up. Read your church manual. I was in a very difficult part of the world field one time, and I, the appeal was not for baptism. It was an appeal for people to download the church manual and read it. And I will do the same thing now. <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's online for free. Just type in SDA church manual, get a downloadable PDF. Go to it. It'll blow your mind. Read the work of the board. I wish we had time. I wish we had time. But choosing the carpet color is not on the list. 
That stuff is to be subcommitted out. The primary work of the board is evangelism in all of its phases and getting every member involved in the work. Let me tell you right now, the most radical, lay member, inspiring, challenging, encouraging document we have in the Seventh Adventist Church is the SDA Church Manual. Read it. It talks about an interest coordinator. Every, all right, I'm gonna, can we just preach for just three minutes real quick? You're not going anywhere else. Come on. Every department should say, what is it we're doing to contribute to the soul winning of our church? And they plan events for that. They propose them to the board and say, this is how much it's going to cost, this is how many people we expect, and then when it's done, they report back whether it went well or not so we know whether to repeat it or change some things, okay? Now, let's say that you put on a, a cooking school or something like that for the purpose of being a benefit to others and getting new interests. Then what do you do with those stack of names? Well, typically, well, you give them to the pastor. No, you don't. There's a position in the manual called an interest coordinator. It's a layperson who's supposed to take all the interests and make sure that those interests are assigned to a lay member for follow-up. And the little line in the book, if I'm paraphrased, but I'm pretty sure it's close to identical, is that when the interest is properly, or, or uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically fully prepared, then they bring the pastor in. Okay? So you go to the interest, and then every board meeting, you're supposed to have a report from the interest coordinator. So you hear from the departments, what activities have we done? Interest coordinator, what, coordinate, what interests do we have? Oh, praise the Lord, we've got seven new interests. Great, who's following up on them? What Bible study course are they doing? Have they been invited to the next thing? Are they coming to Sabbath school? Do they have a friend in church? Have they been invited to lunch? What have we done for them? Soul winning is the number one priority of the board. It's just a fascinating thing. You've got to go read the document. I, I, we don't have time for this, but you've got to read it, okay? So go home, show up to stuff, read the church manual, and start something for Jesus individually say, Lord, here am I, send me. Start doing that cycle of evangelism in your own life. Start, start preparing the soil of people's heart. Be intentionally social. Go out of your way to try to build bridges so that you can introduce them to the seed of the word of God and cultivate that crop and see a harvest for Jesus. You don't need a position. You don't need a paycheck. You just need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ to win souls. Okay? Do that. And what's going to happen is people are going to notice, by the way, I must tell this to young people. Please, please, stop demanding positions in the church. Please demonstrate that you're ready for leadership. No one on the nominating committee sits around and says, you know, we need somebody to this. You know, I heard the whiniest, brattiest kid. Let's make them the... No. What they're going to do is they're going to say, like, hey, this young person has shown up to prayer meeting. I notice they're in Sabbath school all the time. I notice they're always doing outreach. This person has demonstrated that they're ready for leadership. Right? Be the thing you want people to confer upon you, and it'll happen faster than you can imagine. Okay? Okay? And positions of responsibility, because you actually demonstrated a history, a track record of genuine work for Jesus. Okay? Anyway, so start something. You can do something as little as just inviting people over to your house for a DVD Bible study. You push play, make the popcorn, you're an evangelist. It's that simple. Invite your friends and neighbors over. Hey, this, oh, and I must give you this one. I forgot to say it last night, and praise the Lord, he brought it to my mind today. I learned this from some friends of mine who learned it from a pastor they heard at camp meeting when they were just lay people, and I'm telling you, it's the best. If you're looking for a Bible study, you're like, I don't know how to approach people. I don't know how to ask. How do I ever get somebody interested? To... Here's what you do. And in all seriousness, I'm giving you this assignment right now. You now have a homework assignment 
to go find someone to study the Bible with. Everyone in this room. Now you can leave and say, the thing is, I was at this training event this weekend, and, you know, I'm taking this course on how to get Bible studies, and I have to practice with somebody. It's part of my assignment. Would you mind just listening to me give this Bible study so that you can tell me if I'm doing it well? Just kind of critique me, be my guinea pig. I really appreciate it. There's some wisdom to that. When Jesus came to the woman at the well, he didn't offer to help her. He said, hey, I need you to help me. You see people with grocery bags? If you run up, hey, can I help you? They're probably, no, 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 I'm all right. But if you're loaded down, odds are they'll help you before you, they'll let you help them. I had an opportunity. I was in um, Switzerland. Yes. Anyway, they spoke a language I didn't speak. <laughs> That's what I knew about it at the time. And the translator who was working with me didn't speak this Swiss German. He just spoke German. And it was, we were paired up on outreach and dropped off in the middle of the city that we couldn't read the maps for. There was wisdom in that plan, I'm sure. So anyway, we had all these little baskets and we we're trying to invite people to this health outreach thing and we didn't know where to go. And so we would go up to people on the street and ask them, can you please help us with directions? We don't know where we're going. And they would, oh, sure. And we'd piece together the language and they'd say, what are you guys out here doing? And we're like, oh, we're, we're actually just trying to find people to invite them to this thing and we'd give them a thing. And then after that, we got lost again. We're like, oh, shoot. So... <laughs> So we went, and we ended up just aimlessly wandering into people, and we noticed that all of our gifts were giving it out. And we're like, wait a minute, this is brilliant. Let's just stay lost. <laughs> as long as we know where to get back to at the end of the day, right? And we had more success and more dialogue when we needed help and they could help us. And we got all of the invitations passed out, and we didn't speak a word of the language. It was really, really fun. Right? But tell people, like, I need your help. I'm trying to practice, and you are. I want to get good at this, and I'm not. Well, can you help me? And then you open up Daniel chapter 2 and say, the reasons for our understanding. And they're going to listen to you, but they're going to listen to the word through you. And they're going to say, like, oh, thank I, I really appreciated that. Now, I, I don't really want to overburden you, but could we do this again next week? I, I just want to... Friends, by the way, that's not deceitful. You want to practice. You want to get good, and you want them to learn. The Apostle Paul said, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Jesus said, when we go out to win souls, we should be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. The serpent always represents Satan. We should be smart. Is it possible that Satan wants souls more than we do? And he's more innovative, more creative, more hardworking than we ever are at winning souls. Sorry, I preached again. Counterintuitive as it may be, this is another thing you can go look up. After you download the church manual, go to the same Adventist website and go to the statistics and archives page. And what you'll find is this. I've done this research and I'm pretty sure, well, it's, it's pretty impressive. Counterintuitive as it may be, statistically, territories with fewer pastors almost always grow faster. If you look at how many churches, and they keep record of this, and they publish it, and it's up to a, you know, the last year or so accurate. It's very, very up-to-date. And you see how many, past, how many churches per pastor. The more churches share one pastor, the better that whole territory grows. Their growth rate is higher. And it works for every socioeconomic thing, every geographic territory, every culture. It works. You compare any two things, and the ones that have fewer pastors per church grow faster. 
Now, I want to be clear about this. I know this is really recorded, and I want to be clear. Most pastors aren't doing a bad job. They're merely doing the wrong job. Most pastors are doing your job, and most of you, not specifically you, but the general you, aren't doing any job at all. We now have a model where 100 people sit and watch one man work instead of one man training 100 people to go be workers for Christ. We need a reformation in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Our big problem isn't poor pastors, but poor expectations of pastors held by both laity and leadership. Let's change our minds. Let's think differently. My appeal is simply this. To be a people of the book, we should work the way the book directs. Inspiration has warned and history has demonstrated that settled pastors lead to settled elders, settled deacons, and settled members. Jesus said the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. We have too many watchers and not enough workers. We have too many mere members and not enough genuine missionaries. I told you I was going to make an appeal today. I praise God, by the way, that there are some non-Seventh-day Adventists who've been attending our meetings. And if you're here today, welcome. And there may be some people in the room who would like to be the recipient of a Bible study, but no one's ever asked them. I want to change that today. Okay? And I don't want to call you out and put you on the spot or anything like that. But after our meeting today, for just a minute, if you would like to receive Bible studies... Why don't you come visit with me and one of the restoration leaders over here and we'll talk with you. If nobody comes, that's fine. But I want to make sure the invitation is clear. If there's anyone here who would like to know more about the Word of God and study the truth for this time, why don't you come join me after the service up here, discreetly and quietly. For the rest of you, here's the challenge. Yes, it's several fold. In a broad sense, I'd like you to read the church manual. I'd like to attend the prayer meeting and the Sabbath school and the church services and the board meetings and the church business meetings and the socials and the outreaches and the evangelism. I want you to be a member in active participation in your local church, number one. But number two, more specifically, I would like to challenge you to ask God to bring into your life at least one person that you can lead to Jesus. And dedicate yourself. Say, Lord, I'm willing to give you two hours a week. I know you're busy scheduled. I know your schedule's all busied up. I get that. But let me tell you something. If someone says, if you could come once a week for two hours and I'd give you $1,000 each time, you know what happened to your schedule? It'd free right on up. <laughs> Ooh, found some wiggle room, did you? <laughs> Friends, what we're talking about is not money. We're talking about precious priceless souls for the kingdom. Say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Make me more than a member. Make me a missionary. Lord, let me not settle for mere faithfulness, but put me to use for your cause. And I don't know who that is, and I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm willing to go Will you tell me to go. I'm willing to open my mouth and preach to them Jesus. I'm, I'm willing to look at my legs and realize they're atrophied and sick and frail and I'm not good at it yet, but I want to get trained. I want to get better. I want to be good for you. So what I would invite you to do, and I don't want to, we don't have music planned. I don't want tears. If you want to cry, that's fine. But 
I want serious commitments to the work of God. I don't want this to be a spiritual high. You have flowed off and that's the end of it. I want intensely practical. Lord, give me at least one. Don't settle for one, by the way. If there's two, take two. But at least one person that I can win to Jesus through my own labors. If you would like to make that commitment, and please don't do it because everybody else is doing it. But would you raise your hand before God right now and say, I'm willing to give a Bible study to find one person to do what I can to lead someone through the truth of God's word into his remnant movement. If that is your commitment, would you raise your hands with me today? Praise God. And if you haven't raised your hand, thank you for your honesty and all seriousness. But friends, God sees that. And what we see today, we could have a nice photograph, we could bring everybody down, but the real evidence of a call is found after it's made. The real evidence is found in the daily life, in the ongoing ministry. Lord, help me to walk, build me up into a worker for you. I always ask it, and I'll ask it one more time. Has today's presentation been clear? Praise God for that. Now, you might disagree, that's fine. But at least you've seen the message and understood it. And now it's between you and the Lord for how you're going to respond. Please with me, if you would, bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for giving us life at all and giving us the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I praise your name that you have brought us into this place today and that you've given us your word and that you've, by your Holy Spirit, been working on our hearts. Then we want to be faithful to you. Lord, my first prayer is for faithfulness. Lord, please help every one of us to have a daily devotional life with you. Help each of us to be active in your church, Lord. Help us to be members in good standing, faithful to you. But Lord, beyond mere faithfulness, Lord, I would pray for an outpouring of usefulness from your people. Lord, right here in the Loma Linda area in the Southern California region, there are souls that need to be won and there are workers right here in this room. But maybe they don't know it and maybe they haven't started yet. But for them and for myself, for everyone here and those who might be listening online, Lord, I would ask that you train us, equip us, fill us with wisdom and tact and understanding and creativity and zeal for your work. And through our humble efforts, weak and frail as they may be, let your glory be seen. Lord, we want Jesus to come soon. And we want soon to be sooner. But it is my prayer today that when Jesus comes, that not one will be missing. So Lord, set us to work in your vineyard and help us to redeem the time. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.